Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. God, we are asking right now for you to make something happen. That you make something happen to us right here. I'm not just talking about 8146 Quarterfield Road. I'm talking about right here in our lives. Something more than it's just interesting. Something more than is just entertaining. Something more than is just a little bit of curious. Oh God, let something essential happen to us. Something awesome, something real. Speak to our condition, Lord. Change us. Somewhere inside of us, where it matters, where you know it matters. We might not even know it matters, but change us inside where it matters and make it a change that will burn and tremble and heal or explode into tears or laughter or love and some kind of change that will throb within us or scream within us or, or keep a terrible cleansing silence. Something inside of us that will dare us to the dangerous deeds of faith. And that just simply may be addressing an area of our life that we've been unwilling to address. Lord, we are praying, let something happen in us here that makes us more like Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among us. This is what John the Baptist came preaching. It's what Jesus came preaching. It is the centerpiece of all of the gospel. The kingdom of God is right here, right now, available for you. Jesus inaugurated its perpetual presence and a presence for any and everyone, not just the children of Israel, the Jewish race, but Jesus came to inaugurate this open and inclusive kingdom of God for everyone to recognize, move into, and live your whole life there. Now, Last week was Easter, and I'm grateful for the bishop being here and you giving me that grace and freedom not to be here, to be at my son's wedding, and that was a real joy for me. It was a joy to have the bishop speak. However, post-Easter, we see in John chapter 20, Jesus giving a little bit of COVID comfort. Let's look at John chapter 20 for a little bit of COVID comfort from Jesus based on his resurrection. John 20, starting with verse 18, Mary Magdalene went telling the news to the disciples, I saw the master, and she told them everything he said to her. Later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the virus, had locked all the doors in the house. So the disciples were in lockdown. Does anybody know anything about that? The, the disciples were sheltering in place. Anybody ever done that? Yeah. We kind of know a little bit about what it means to shelter in place because we're afraid of what? We're afraid of an external threat. These are the disciples recognizing an external threat. They were afraid that something was going to get them. And they locked the doors and they sheltered in place. Guess what Jesus does? Now, when you lock your doors, if, if the pizza delivery guy would come to your door during lockdown... Say, 
51 weeks ago, would have come to your door during lockdown, and you would have opened the door, and he would have barged right in and walked into your living room and just started talking to you and opened up the pizza and, you know, would you have been comfortable? You would have been completely unnerved. That would have been audacious of him. But this is what Jesus does. Listen to what he does. But Jesus entered anyway. How many of us are locked down in certain areas of our life? How many of us are locked up in fear? We're sheltering in place with regard to some kind of fear in our life, anxiety in our life, condition in our life, and we are locked up and locked down. And you know what? We really don't want anyone to violate that space because we really like to be angry. And we really like to be fearful. And we really like to preserve that need. I deserve to feel this way kind of experience. I don't want anyone to test my reality. I'm making my own reality. I'm sheltering in this place of fear and anxiety or resentment and bitterness and concern. We're sheltering in place. What does Jesus always do? He barges in. He'll barge in with a sermon. He'll barge in by, with a friend holding you accountable, speaking into your life. He'll barge in with a revelation. He'll barge in with a thought. He'll barge in in some form, some fashion, in order to be able to let you know that fear is nowhere where God expects His children to live. He barges in. No, they, locked, they were locking everybody up. He barged in anyway, stood among them and said, Peace to you. And that's what He's saying to you today. If this sermon is a little bit of me barging in, that's really Jesus barging in on you and saying, peace to you. Then he showed them his hands and his side because he will always reference his death and resurrection as a reason for not fearing and confidence. The disciples, seeing the master with their own eyes, were awestruck. Jesus repeated his greeting, peace to you. Just as the Father sent me, I send you. To do what? To barge in on people's fear. To barge in to folks' lives. To enter in any way and speak and share truth. And the very presence and peace of Jesus in the midst of fear and trembling. As the Father sent me, I send you. Then he took a deep breath and breathed into them. Not onto them, but into them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. What's going to empower you to be sent like he was sent? The Father is sending you, Keith. He's sending you, Rosemary. He's sending you, Tracy. He's sending you, Craig. He's sending me. And He's sending us by filling us with the Holy Spirit. And as we open ourselves to the very breath of life, He fills us with the Holy Spirit and sends us as a missionary God. As a missionary sending God, He sends us into the world with the peace that passes all understanding. And we are called to be lived experience of the very presence and peace of God. In John's gospel, the first thing he did was barge into their fear party and bring peace. 
And then he sends his disciples out into the world with that confidence and with that peace. The Prince of Peace always comes bringing peace by pointing people to his victory over death. It's exactly what his disciples do. We're always pointing people to his victory over death. And what else other than death has any fear upon us? If death is not a matter of fear, what else could possibly be a matter of fear? He showed them his hands. He showed them his side. You show people his hands. You point people to his side. And in doing so, peace will enter. As soon as someone opens themselves up to the very peace of God that lives, that is lived experience in you, they will experience that peace as well. This is revelation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the face of a real and present threat. Death is a real and present threat. But when we look, when we place our hands in his nail-scarred hand and we recognize his, his spear-pierced side, and we recognize his life after death, and he invites us into that same life after death, then we ourselves take in a big deep breath of the Holy Spirit, and we ourselves walk in the power of the Spirit, breathing the peace of God in every aspect of our life. Are you breathing the peace of God in your marriage? Are you breathing the peace of God in your workplace? Are you breathing the peace of God in your social media? Are you breathing the peace of God in your friendships, in your neighborhood, in your politics, in your finance? Are you breathing the peace of God? Receive the Holy Spirit and go in peace. John 20, 23. If you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. If you don't forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? What is the first thing that Jesus begins to challenge his disciples with after he walks in after Easter and shows up and breathes the Holy Spirit on them? The first thing he starts talking about is exactly why I went to the cross and exactly why I rose from the dead. It's forgiveness. Jesus is here not granting the disciples some kind of divine position or divinity to condemn or forgive people in some sort of eternal sense. That is not what Jesus is doing here. He is not making disciples gods. What he's doing here is the truth is that he's holding on to someone's sin is bad for you. You holding on to someone's sin, you holding on to your own sin is bad for you. But forgiving someone's sin is good for you. Forgiving and releasing your own sin is good for you. When you hold on to your own sin, when you hold on to the sins of others, what good could that possibly be for you? What good could it possibly be for someone else? What's the benefit of gathering up everyone's sin and holding on to them? What good is that? Jesus exemplified for us how to lead with forgiveness. He did it on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He led with forgiveness. He calls us as he sends us. Do like I do. 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you're driving into the parking lot at work, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you wake up in the morning and you look over that person laying next to you, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You know, when, when you go to pick your kids up from school, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. What if you lived a life where you led with forgiveness? Jesus led us to lead with forgiveness because if we don't forgive the sins of others, we put ourselves in danger. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 basically is recharacterizing this entire thing from Jesus and he says, and don't, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. So let's take a look at what the king of the kingdom has to say about forgiveness for those who live in the world's kingdom, but of God's kingdom. You, me, right now live in the world's kingdom, but of God's kingdom. So let's talk about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21, regarding this notion of forgiveness and the very incredible, eternal, potentially, consequences that relate to forgiveness and unforgiveness. Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? That was a standard in that day. It was a common Jewish practice to forgive people seven times. And then you were basically off the hook and you never had to forgive them again. That was kind of the rule of the law, a very little letter of the law type thing. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. This was Jesus just saying, unlimited. There is no end. There's no end of your forgiveness of people. You, you're not holding sins against them. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened, and then the king called the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Wow. In a culture of tolerance where anything goes and people can DIY their faith, Jesus is very, very much intolerant of this kind of behavior. 
Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your condemnation, your judgment, your resentment, your bitterness. Oh my goodness. Living in a perpetual state of unforgiveness gives the devil a foothold in your life. Why would anyone want to hold on to the sins of others while you know from the scriptures Jesus is saying what you're doing is you're propping the door open for the devil. You're holding it open, you're putting your foot in it, and you're saying, you got access you got, you got access. I'm, I'm not forgiving that guy. I'm not forgiving that girl. I'm so mad. I'm so angry. I'm so upset. I'm so bitter. I'm so resentful. They did this to me. I'll never let them go. And you're just saying, come, devil, come on in. Okay, it's cool. Hey, Jesus, thank you very much. I'm going to let the devil in. This is the idea. Cueing off of this passage, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow shares this incredible quote as he cues off of this passage. Listen carefully to this. If you could read the secret history of your enemy's life, you would therein find such sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And the same goes for you. If an enemy of yours could see into the secret history of your life, they would find such sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. What good is it to hold on to all of that? What benefit is it for you? What, how does it help your family? How does it help your children? How does it help community? How does it help society to hold all kinds of bitterness and resentment and anger and madness and unforgiveness? How does it help? What good is it to you or anyone else? It just gives the devil a foothold. What Jesus is doing in this passage is that he's referencing, much like Paul, this, this Leviticus 19 passage. It's a classic Jewish passage about forgiveness and consequence. And listen carefully, because you can't really understand John 20 until you understand Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. Listen carefully to this. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Now, in the New Testament, through the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying, your relatives, your neighbors, is, is everyone. It's everyone. In this context, of course, it's Israel. But in the context of Jesus, as he takes it to another level, he's expanding it to anyone and everyone. So do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Get that. Confront people directly. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any fellow Israelite. In the New Testament terms, against anyone. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. And as we know, in the, New in the New Testament, the Pharisees came back and said, yeah, well, who is our neighbor? And Jesus said, it's everyone. I am the Lord. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. So let's sync up Ephesians chapter 4 and Leviticus and see how it comes together. Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. So truth is confront people directly. You don't, you're not a doormat. You don't just roll over and let people walk all over you. You don't let people get away with bad things or wrong things. So you confront people directly, but you don't bear a grudge, and you don't hold a bunch of emotional intensity about it. You confront it, you deal with it, you ask for repentance, you seek correction, and you move on in freedom. 
Truth, confront people directly. Love, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Both consequence and compassion is held in tension in the Jewish understanding, which Jesus was very much of. Furthermore, like I said, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus takes this passage in Leviticus and expands it to include all humanity. Indeed, our neighbor, according to Jesus, is everyone. Apparently, to Jesus, forgiveness is the very foundation of Christ-like behavior, of being a Christ-like neighbor, that we confront and we have compassion. We hold that intention. I want to encourage you to think about this statement. It's an amazing quote if you actually decide, I'm going to try to live like this. If you live a life without condemnation, you will never have the need to forgive. How many times have we over the years saying, well, if they repent, if they say they're sorry, I'll forgive them. And we hold their sin until somehow they grovel enough or beg enough. Is this the character of Jesus? It is not. The way of Jesus leads with forgiveness. It conveys compassion whether or not there's repentance or not. It, it leads with repentance. If you live a life without condemnation, you will never have the need to forgive. So let's just kind of work through this passage. I'm going to chunk it out. I'm going to go really quickly. And so if you'll look at this passage and you'll walk through it with me, we're going to put it in context and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse. Context is critical here. In the very previous passage, Jesus is talking about someone who is unrepentant. And he says, go to that person that sinned against you, that you're upset with, go straight to them, directly to them, confront them directly, right away. You don't wait, you go right away. And you seek reconciliation, you seek repentance. You hurt me, this was a problem, this is an issue. You know, and hopefully the other person says, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Let's unite, let's pray, forgive me, I forgive you. You know, and we got reconciliation. But if you don't, then take a couple other people. That's because it's so important. Unity is so important. Take another couple people. And if that doesn't work, take the leadership of the church. And if that doesn't work, bring it before the whole church. And if that doesn't work, the person's still unrepentant, kick them out. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but repentance is key. Jesus is saying all throughout the passage, repentance is key. He is ultimately saying that an example of how the church does discipline is an example of how ultimately God will do discipline. If a person dies without repentance, they are lost. He's saying after all of this grace is extended, after all of this compassion is extended, if a person is still unrepentant, we remove them from our fellowship. Did you know uh, Pastor Bowman gave me a box uh, a long time ago, and the box had in it the minutes of uh, a bunch of board meetings from the 1950s of this church. Did you know that on, in every meeting, they disfellowshipped between two and eight people? They kicked two, between two and eight people out for stuff like immorality, for non-support financially, for uh, lack of support uh, talent-wise and gift-wise as far as serving in it, for non-attendance. They just fellowship people. We can't have that. 
It was, it was an amazing, when I looked at it, I was like, it was, it's amazing. How, how does that really work today? If the biblical mandate is truly contemporary church discipline, we don't see that hardly anywhere. But yet Jesus calls the church to walk through a process to garner repentance, and if no repentance is had, then that person is removed. 1 Corinthians is about disfellowshipping someone. 2 Corinthians is about restoring them back. It's all throughout the New Testament. We're looking for repentance. If repentance is had, we preserve unity. But if there's no repentance, we have to separate. Confront, compassion, but there's always consequences held in balance. Now, Matthew 18, 21, let's take a look at this. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times? Seven. Jesus is saying that the citizens in the kingdom of God don't have the pay grade to eternally condemn. Only temporally forgive. You don't have the pay grade to eternally condemn that's only God's pay grade. But you have the pay grade, everyone's got the pay grade, to temporally forgive. And temporally forgive in an unlimited fashion. How many times do I need to forgive this person? As many times as they sin against you. You don't hold on to it. Now, does that mean you have to let them keep doing it? No, you can create, that's a consequence. You know, you ask for repentance, they don't repent, they keep doing it. You ask for repentance, they don't repent, they keep doing it. You set a boundary. You don't have to hold on to the emotion. You don't have to hold on to all the toxicity and the poison and all the intensity and the resentment and the bitterness. You let all that go. You give it all away with, with the forgiveness. I forgive you, but I set a boundary. I'm no longer going to be in this kind of relationship with you. I love you. God bless you. You move on. The, the, uh, temporal forgiveness in an unlimited fashion is your responsibility. The only one who has the pay grade to condemn eternally is God. So how does one forgive always and, according to verses 15 through 20, also find cause to deliberate and expel someone from the soul family? I love what commentators Davies and Allison say here. They say that in the Jewish tradition, which is the tradition of Jesus, confrontation and accountability is held in balance with love and forgiveness. It's meant to be held in tension and balance. We have we have confrontation, something happened, I need, I need your repentance. We repent, we restore unity, we move on. The sun doesn't go down on our anger. No bitterness builds up. But when we live in this fashion of constantly forgiving, constantly in an unlimited way, then we recognize that consequence and forgiveness are not incompatible. A great example of this is children and the discipline of children. No one would think a parent unloving for correcting their children for the sake of the child and for the sake of the family. But most would see it parentally irresponsible for a parent to forgive their kid with no consequences. Confrontation and consequence are Christ-like if they're motivated by love and forgiveness. To forgive is the absence of condemnation. That's our role. We don't have the role of condemnation, but we do have the role of forgiveness. To forgive is the absence of condemnation, not the absence of consequence. Let me give you an example. My, my daughter, my oldest daughter, loved to take showers when she was about 11 years old. 
She loved to take 45-minute showers. She loved to drain the hot water heater till there was nothing left. I, I told her, I asked for repentance. I confronted. I asked for repentance, which would bring her into conformity. She refused. I took my wife to talk to her. She refused. I got the family together. I sat the family around the table. We had a leadership meeting. She refused. And so she continued to take 45-minute showers. And so me, knowing where the shutoff valve was, <laughs> told her she had, she had 20 minutes. Timer went off. I shut the water off. She screamed like a banshee. She screamed. No water. A head completely full of shampoo. She went to school that day with a head full of shampoo. I love you, I forgive you, but get in the car. No tension, no pressure, no bitterness, no resentment. Sun didn't go down on my anger. It was, it previously was going on down every day. On, but I, I, I just, here's the deal, here's the limit, this is what we do. Again, we've got to be very clear here at the start. Condemnation harbors value judgment. Where we condemn as evil, and that's a real danger for us. Forgiveness, in a Christ-like matter, forgiveness releases value judgment where only God condemns as evil. We give God the pay grade of condemning as evil, and we simply take up the cause of forgiveness. Remember, persons, personal condemnation and human value judgment is simply beyond our pay grade. You don't make that decision. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money for him. Now, this story Jesus uses to illustrate how the kingdom of God works. And it's not to be taken as some kind of one-to-one -one parallel where the king is exactly like God and God is exactly like the king. Jesus is just using this to summarize the character of God for the value of leading with forgiveness. Verse 24, in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Now, in your particular translation, it might say talents, like 10,000 talents. I need to translate that for you. 10,000, one talent was 15 years of wages. One talent, 15 years of wages. In fact, in this particular illustration, uh, it says millions, but we're more looking at billions. Some commentators say that 10,000 talents is actually in today's dollars would equate to $3.5 billion. Okay, verse 25. He couldn't pay, obviously, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Did you all know that's in your mortgage, by the way? It's all fine print you didn't read. Go check it out. <laughs> Some of you are going to go home and get the mortgage out. <laughs> Enslaving debtors and their families was a really common practice in that day. It was, a, it was a regular Roman practice, so nobody would have even batted an eye, especially because of the fantastic sum. Verse 26. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I'll pay it. I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave him of his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before 
before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. He pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now this part of the story intentionally parallels the former part of the story and Jesus is making the point that where the forgiven debtor has been forgiven, he doesn't forgive those that in his debt. So uh, this guy owed him like, what, um, 100 denarii? Denarii is just like a day's wages. That's all a denarii is. So 100 wages might be worth, you know, some commentators say 250 to $300. Others say maybe it's over $1,000. You know, a very small amount in contrast with millions and billions of dollars. Obviously, the golden rule wasn't followed. When the golden rule says, you do to me like I would want you to do to me. I'll do to you like I want you to do to me. It's a golden rule. This guy didn't follow that at all. Verse 31. When some of the servants who saw this, they were very upset, they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And remember here that folks are hearing this audibly. They didn't read. People in that day didn't read. Very few people read. There was only a couple copies of the gospel in all the world. And so somebody, some disciple would go to these towns and meet with these Christian people who are following Jesus, and they would literally read the gospel in one sitting. They would read the gospel of John in one sitting and say, okay, that's it. You know, so, or the gospel of Matthew. And so they were following through here. So they would remember. They would remember that just a few chapters ago, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect like your heavenly fathers were. Be like your heavenly father. And then he's saying, if you don't, there's going to be trouble. Because this king said to this guy, you're not acting like me. I, the king, forgave you. You better go and act like me. And you didn't do it. There's going to be trouble. Jesus is saying, they already would have known that. They heard that in chapter 5. Now they're seeing Jesus bring it back in chapter 18. So his followers would have recognized that, oh, Jesus is saying, the king, God, I need to be like the king and live like the king. That's what God really wants me to do. Paul recalls this command in Ephesians 5.1. Paul says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. This is the command of every citizen in God's kingdom. Imitate the king. Lead with forgiveness. Verse 34, then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Does that sound like a soft, sweet little God? A Santa Claus God? It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like God's very, very serious about you living like he expects you to live in his kingdom. The intention of Jesus could not be clearer. Jesus is declaring that anyone who lives a hypocritical life is not a citizen of God's kingdom. You can go to church, you can pretend you're religious, but if you are not living out what you say you believe, if you are not living out in the way in which the king has called you to live in his kingdom, you are not of the kingdom. You are a poser, you are a hypocrite and you will be condemned. This is what should happen now within the present church. Jesus just said it in the previous passage. Hold people to account with compassion 
ask for repentance. If there's no repentance, separate. Because one day, in the big picture, at the big judgment, God is going to bring you before him. You've had plenty of time to repent. You've had all kinds of opportunities. And only God has the pay grade where he cuts off grace and he brings judgment. We don't have that pay grade. We are called to perpetually produce grace. We are called to perpetually forgive because we don't have that pay grade. But one of these days, God is going to cut off grace. And he is going to call to account everyone. I am asking you to listen very carefully right now. One day you, you will stand before God in that moment of divine light. You will know your fate. In the story, in the second half of the story, the, do you see that guy that was forgiven millions of dollars, billions of dollars, begging for forgiveness again? No, because he knew. He just knew. There was no way around it. Caught red-handed, grace was over, now condemnation and judgment from the king. Everything was clear. He didn't even, he didn't even whimper. He took it. He recognized what was going to happen. I'm, I'm dead. That's basically what happened. He stood condemned based on the body of work of his life. There will be no deliberation when you stand before God in judgment. It will be clearer than anything has ever been clear. You will know and God will know. If you genuinely lived for and in the way of Jesus, you are forgiven and you will be rewarded. But if your citizenship in God's kingdom was fake, you are condemned and you will be punished. Oh, happy day. Wow. This is serious business. Light and frothy preaching is not going to help you. I'm speaking to you as clearly as I can because Jesus was really clear. You lead with forgiveness because you don't own the pay grade that God has. And any of us who are just ranting and raving and barking at people and condemning people and calling people names and blah, 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 all that stuff. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That kind of value judgment is left with God. You can disagree with someone's position or methodology you can you can think it crazy but the way in which you set yourself up emotionally towards people is really important really important and in our day and age of vitriol and bitterness and resentment and you know casting all kinds of dispersions and divisiveness and calling people names and ranting and raving i'm just calling you to be very very careful because you were forgiven a lot I was forgiven a lot. And when you sit there and you call somebody a name and you are resentful and bitter and you are demeaning them and castigating them personally, 
That's a very dangerous place to put yourself in. And Jesus is saying that whether you wake up in the morning with bitterness against your wife or, or your husband, whether you wake up in the morning with bitterness and rage and anger about your, your son or your daughter, or the neighbor who let their dog get in your trash, just, just take pause. Ask yourself, is this becoming of a child of the citizen of God? The citizen of the king, the citizen of God's kingdom. When you stand before him, you won't be able to defend yourself. So start now living a life that leads with forgiveness, that is postured in grace, that is deeply loving, that holds people accountable when you make yourself available for being held accountable and you let repentance be your rule. Repent every day. When someone comes to you and there's a problem, be very open and honest and, and be open to receive that accountable correction, that confrontation. Don't hesitate to confront someone else with love and compassion and seek repentance and unity. This is the way of Jesus. Bitterness, resentment, separation, division, secrecy, all of that is not the way of Jesus that is giving the devil a foothold. So I want to invite you right now to just get real with God. Get real with God. Would you pray with me? If you're not a Christian and you're watching this, maybe you're thinking, you know what, I'd really love some of that forgiveness from God. Jesus gives peace. I want that peace. Well, right now is your opportunity to do that. Just repent. Repent of living a life without Jesus. Repent of living a life without God and start living a life with Him. Recognize Jesus came to die on a cross, raised from the dead, and to offer you forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. Just, just accept it. For you that are Christians and you're watching or you're here, I'm asking you, are you fake? Are you posing? Are you right here today truly acting religious? but yet you've got all kinds of bitterness in your heart and resentment, you're carrying around all kinds of anger and condemnation for people and value judgment for people and that's, that's the mode you live in? I just want to invite you into this context, into this posture of repentance and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, you had, you had billions of dollars of mercy on me. Why am I holding all these other people to account for a couple hundred bucks Lord, they don't owe me anything. I owe you everything. Just repent. Just say that.